Do you believe he's a great I am this morning? He is truly wonderful. Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And, uh, and it is a privilege to worship him. Um, I don't know about you, but as I said before, sometimes I can get kind of just caught up in the moments of just doing church and forget that the fact that we can even sing praises to his name and the fact that he receives that as worship is a beautiful gift of salvation. It's a beautiful gift of grace that we are allowed access into his very throne room to worship him and to praise him and that he receives it. Uh, He doesn't receive it because you sing really pretty. He doesn't receive it because you sound good and always sing on key because if he did, I would never have my worship received. He receives it because he hears through our worship, he hears the cry of the redeemed. He hears the praise of those that were lost and undone and dead in their trespasses and sins and those that Jesus Christ has quickened, given new life. And now we praise him as children of God, sons and daughters, excited and thankful for the freedom he gives us all by his grace. It is a display of grace to all generations that we would magnify his name. And so we are blessed even to worship this morning. And I pray that you have not neglected that, not only here corporately, but also individually to worship him in spirit and in truth as he blesses and provides for so many things in our lives. Um, It is great to be able to honor him. And so I'm thankful to do that this morning. Uh, You've turned in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read a very familiar verse in just a moment. It's actually a familiar verse following a very, very familiar verse. But I want to speak this morning to an aspect of Christ's ministry, meaning his earthly ministry, that truly uh, is a powerful, life-changing, eternity-changing reality for the believer. This moment that I'm going to speak to you, that we're going to spend this morning looking at, grants to us both the peace and insurance of our eternal standing with the Father. And it actually, when we really understand this moment, it gives us and fills us with great joy. It actually gives us great joy when we understand what takes place in this moment. In the life and ministry of Christ on earth, we celebrate the virgin birth. Is that a miracle, the virgin birth? And I think we don't need to forget that or downplay that. We need to understand this is a great move of God that this call that day that we celebrate the virgin birth of Christ. We give a whole day to it. Really, it's a whole season. We call it Christmas. We celebrate that. We rejoice in that. We tell stories of that. We sing songs of that. That all that went into the birth of Christ, the angels out in the field with the shepherds and the, and the wise men coming and laying their gifts before the newly introduced Christ into the world. And they, we read about Mary and Joseph and all that went into whole, all of that with even the six months before with John the Baptist and his miraculous birth and all of these things. We celebrate that and that's good and it should be celebrated. And then we talk about the sinless life of Christ, that he lived a sinless life in complete submission to the father that he did in his earthly ministry, which was somewhere around three and a half years, tremendous miracles, great works and evidences, not only that he was God and divine, but also that he had a compassion and a care for his creation, that he was moved with compassion over us because we were sheep scattered, having no shepherd. We celebrate the life of Christ, that he, he lived a life of submission to the father, doing all these great wonders and works. I love that John says, if we tried to write down all the things that Jesus did, there's not enough ink if the oceans were turned to ink and there's not enough parchment if the skies were made of parchment. We couldn't tell you all the things that Jesus did in his life and ministry. We celebrate that and that's good to celebrate that. We should read through the gospels and all the things that Jesus did. And then obviously we talk about the death of Christ. The culmination of his life was to die, that he would die on that cross as a sacrificial payment for those that would trust in Christ. That he was the perfect lamb of God, sinless and spotless, and then gave himself willingly, again, in submission to the Father. He took on flesh, the form of a servant, and he lived that form until he gave his life on the cross. And we know that that our sins are forgiven because he was nailed to that cross for our sins. Amen. Again, we we need to remember that and celebrate that, not just on Good Friday, not just when the calendar tells us, okay, now I need to think about this again, but every single day we should remember the reason I've been given eternal life is because Jesus Christ died for me. He died for you. And when we remember that and celebrate that, it brings us great joy. And we know that he didn't stay dead, amen? 
You guys got to help me out this morning a little bit. I'm, I'm a little excited to preach this morning. I've been looking forward to this for a few days now, and I'm excited to be here. So I'm excited to preach, and I, I need your help a little bit this morning. I need you guys to keep me going. It's a little gloomy outside, and I, I don't want to let that get me going, okay? The blinds are closed. I just realized that. That's why it's not gloomy. The blinds are closed. But when you think about this idea of his death, his burial, what follows that? His wonderful resurrection. That he is not dead, but he is risen. And we just celebrated that on Easter Sunday. We celebrated that when they came to the tomb, the stone was rolled away and he was no longer there. And that we know that the resurrection is God affirming the sacrifice of Christ. That the father was pleased because Jesus rose again. It's sealing that work of the cross that started by going to the cross and finished with the resurrection of Christ. Because guess what? Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then the cross is worthless. He says, if there is no resurrection and we believe there is a resurrection and we put our faith and trust in that, but there isn't a resurrection, then he says, you're actually still in your sin and you're of all men most miserable because you think your sins are forgiven, but they're not. But because there is a resurrection, we celebrate the newness of life. Romans chapter six, that we've been buried with Christ to be risen again. We know that one day we'll see the future of that resurrection, but we were resurrected Right? Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses. We were resurrected, brought new life. Romans 6 says we walk in the newness of life by his grace. That we have peace with God. That we have peace with God. And we celebrate all these things. But there's an aspect of the earthly ministry of Christ that doesn't get a lot of attention. It doesn't get the same notoriety, I believe, as these other aspects and these wonderful moments of what God did for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that would be the ascension of Christ. The moment that Christ left this world and ascended back to the Father. And we need to celebrate that moment. And you might say, well, I don't really understand why we need to celebrate that. We talk about it every now and then. But does it really get the weight that the resurrection or the cross or the virgin birth or the sinless life? It's one of those areas of Christ's ministry and earthly life as far as we know that he was still living after the resurrection. And that's why I say the earthly ministry of Christ, the earthly life of Christ. We don't really spend time unpacking the ascension. I mean, most people think, well, the ascension, that's just, he just went back to heaven, big deal. But I would suggest to you that the scriptures give us wisdom that there is so much more to that ascension than maybe what we've realized. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that. We're going to kind of unpack that and talk about this wonderful ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 says this, And when he had spoken these things, and while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. I know Pastor Greg already prayed, but let's pray and ask God to affirm not only what we've read in his word, but what we're going to read in his word in our hearts and minds. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are so full of just your presence, being able to worship you as we have, to recognize you as the great I am, that, that you were not created, that you alone are God, and that we just need to recognize you as God. You've always been you always will be. And we get to come and worship you as the children or as your children, Lord. The, the redeemed, those that have found Christ and received by faith the gift of salvation that you offered to us freely. Everything we do, Lord, is a reaction to what you've already done. We love you because you first loved us. And so we worship you, Lord, because you made yourself available to us. You've opened up the invitation of salvation to those that would believe. For whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that as we worship you, yes, Lord, through music and offering, we would continue to worship you through the preaching and teaching of your word, that we would be open, Holy Spirit, to your applying it to our hearts and minds. I pray that we would realize that your spirit desires to work in our midst. I pray, Lord, that we would be open to that. That we would realize that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And we want to be understanding of that. And so, Lord, help us to understand how this ascension of your son, how, Lord Jesus, when you ascended, how it impacts us even today. And how it changes our reality of the world we see around us. And so, Father, thank you for this. Give us wisdom in all these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I have to ask as we read verse 9 of Acts 1, what, and just think about it for a moment. You don't need to answer out loud, but what would you be thinking in that moment? I just want you to think for a moment. You're one of the disciples. You're one of the gathered. You're there. Jesus is talking. And all of a sudden, as he finished saying that, he begins to be taken up by this cloud and he's lifted up into the heavens and you're just standing there. I want you to think, what would your reaction be? What would you do? Uh, I think some of us, we would probably fall on our face and begin to worship. Uh, The presence of God in that way would definitely lead some of us to say, I just need to get very low to the ground because he is God and I am not. And I need to humble myself before this God. We see that often in God's word when somebody's before the presence of God. The Bible says that they fall as though dead men. Right? I think sometimes we think, well, I'm going to get to God. I'm going to get to heaven. And I'm going to ask God all these questions. No, you're not. You're going to get before the presence of God and you're going to fall on your face before his holiness and realize that you don't deserve to be there, but you're granted the ability to be there by grace. Maybe some of us would begin to shout praises to God as he, as Jesus is being lifted up or taken up from the earth. Some of us might begin to sing praises to God. That's just how we worship. We tend to to sing out and sing praises. Maybe we just start shouting praises like Paul and Silas sitting in that prison cell at midnight, just begin praising God and just singing out. Maybe we'd begin to sing psalms or psalms of praise from the Old Testament as we see the fulfillment of Scripture right before our eyes. I don't know how you would respond, but I think if it was me, I think I would respond very similarly to how they responded in verse 10. Acts 1 and verse 10. And, when they, and while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. How do the disciples, how do the, the group there gathered, how do they respond? What's their response? Shock? Awe? Where are they looking? How are they looking? Is it like this? Oh, that was cool. And then they just move on. It says steadfastly. You know what that means? They're just, their gaze is fixed. And when you read on there, those two men that we know are angels, they basically say to them, why do you stand here staring up in heaven? The same Jesus who went away will what? I'm paraphrasing, but will what? Come again in like manner. Man, I, I wonder if the disciples, if I'm being honest, weren't standing there thinking, okay, come on back. Like five, ten minutes goes by and they're like, he's not coming back. I thought he said he was coming back. Because that's how we can be, Right? Come on, God, you said you were going to come back. And the way I understand this is you need to come back now because I need you. It can't be your plan that you would go away and not come right back. It can't be your plan that 2,000 years later you still have not come back. That can't be your plan. God, why why don't you come on back down? Maybe it was shock and awe. They can't believe what they just saw. They're just standing steadfastly, just gazed. I imagine mouths opened, right? No one's talking which is kind of awkward when you're like preaching to people. This is kind of awkward to watch somebody do this. I actually thought when I was writing this out, I was like, I actually was going to put in my notes, stare steadfastly at the ceiling for like five minutes. Then I deleted that. And I was like, that would be really weird to watch. I don't want to put you through that. And they're just, they're just fixated on this moment. And I think that fixation, that shock, that awe, that amazement, that astonishment that they were feeling, we miss that because we just keep reading. Man, we just read verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. We're just reading on. Okay, I got it. He went up and they, he went away. But when you read that, do you stop and pause for a second and say, what would I have done in that moment? Like, am I letting the, the weight of this moment actually impact me? Am I letting the weight of this moment affect me to realize what is taking place in front of them is an amazing fulfillment of Scripture? It's a powerful reality that actually changes their lives and our lives today. I want to unpack this moment in the ministry of Christ and see how it can strengthen us in our walk with Christ. Now, while not exhaustive, I'm sure if you were to study this out and read many books on this, there's many different aspects of the ascension that can be highlighted and talked about. So while not exhaustive, I'd like to suggest three key aspects, three key aspects to the ascension of Christ that I think impacts us today, impacts the church and our daily lives. The first thing I have to highlight is the importance of this moment, the importance of this moment. So if you're taking notes 
three key aspects to the ascension of Christ. The first one being the importance of this moment. This moment referring to the ascension. Go over to John chapter 14. Another familiar passage. But again, I don't know that we fully understand it in the weight of what we're talking about. John chapter 14 and verse 1. Now, a danger when I read a familiar passage in my own personal Bible study is I just read it and I don't let it speak to me. I just read it and already think in my head as I'm reading the verses, I know what that means, I know what that means, I know what that means, I know what that means. And I've missed the whole verse, the whole passage, because apparently I know all that it means. I'm sure you've never done this. That just must be my weakness. But, but let's read this and let's put it in the context of the ascension. Remember what he's speaking about is going to happen in Acts chapter 1. The disciples are there. It's this intimate moment. It's part of this beautiful time of this upper room discourse where he's beginning to unpack all these things. Verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now I have to note that quickly, just that last statement there. Jesus never in his ministry suggested more than one way to the Father. Jesus never compromised the message of how to get to the Father because of who he was speaking to. He didn't change for the Pharisees and the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the Grecians. He said the same message. There's one way to the Father. It's through him as the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. It's his salvation. In John chapter 4, we read the very familiar story about the woman at the well. And Jesus says salvation is of the Jews. It's not saying be a Jew to be saved. It's saying from the line of the Jews comes salvation. And so Jesus is clear here for anyone here today that is hearing the cultural pull or even the religious pull that there's all these ways to heaven, that there's many roads up the mountain and we're all going to get to the top of the mountain, whether you call it heaven, if you're Christian, nirvana, if you're Hindi or Buddhist, paradise, whatever term you want to use, it's all the same thing. The Quran, the Bible, they're all teaching the same thing. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ said clearly, as recorded in Scripture, there is one way to the Father, and it's through him. So, either Jesus is a lying lunatic who thought he was God and was not, which kind of contradicts the other teachings of Jesus that said he was a good prophet or a good teacher. You can't be a good prophet and good teacher if you lie about the fact that you're God. So either he was a good prophet and a good teacher, and what he said was true, and he really is the Son of God, God himself, the way of salvation, or he was a lying lunatic and he was insane, thought himself to be God, and he misled countless thousands of people. And he's not really the way. So you can't have it both ways. Jesus is telling the truth or he's not telling the truth. You can't have it both ways. And I believe, because I believe the word of God is the word of God, true cover to cover. I heard one person said, I even believe the concordance, the maps, the table of contents, it's all inspired, is what he would say. I don't know if I'd go that far, but, but I believe the word of God is the word of God. And if it's the word of God, then it is true. It doesn't contain truth. It is truth. And if it is truth, then Jesus is speaking truth. He is the only way. And I believe that in our world today, we need to really, really believe that. Because if we believe that, it would change how we live our daily lives. If I really believe Jesus is the only way, it would change how I see people in my life. We said it before, I would see my days not as mine to use how I want, but gifts from God to evangelize and disciple and to encourage with the word of God because Jesus is the only way. So here we see in this passage, very familiar passage, one that speaks of the coming ascension, the speaking of the coming departure of Christ. He actually spends quite a bit of time in the next couple of chapters, John 15, John 16. He speaks about this idea of the coming of the spirit and all these things. He talks about leaving them and sending the comforter. He actually says it's good for them that he go away. But when you read these six verses of John 14, there is so much in just these few short verses that honestly bring us great comfort. So I want you to think for a moment. Just look over those six verses. 
I know we're kind of doing a little more interaction this morning, but I want you to think over those six verses. I want you to just note for yourself a phrase that encourages you. Take time to do that right now. Everyone should be looking down at their Bible, okay? Down at their Bible, the Bible person next to you, or your device, whatever you need to do. I want you to look at that, those six verses, and I want you to pick out what is a verse, a wording in there that Jesus gave that comforts you. You don't need to say it out loud, but I want you to note that in your mind. Or maybe you would jot it down on a piece of paper. And here's why I want you to do that. Because life is hard. Life is so difficult. And this week, you're going to be confronted with something that you didn't see coming. And I want you to take a part of that passage that I believe encourages us with not only the disciples' future and where they were going to be, but I believe our future as well because we will be with him. And so I want you to do that this morning. I want you to note something in that passage that speaks to you in some way. And maybe you're here this morning and you really are kind of down and discouraged and not really seeing the big picture here. Maybe you would take a moment and maybe something in these six verses would speak to you and encourage you and strengthen you in your walk with Christ. There's so much in there. The one phrase that maybe you wrote down or maybe speaks to you is one that I find my heart and mind going to often. It's to the heart of all that Christ did. It's to the heart of the gospel. It's to the heart of the ministry and the purpose of Christ coming to this place. He says this, that where I am, there you may be also. Man, what a, that, if you had to summarize the gospel, why would Jesus Christ, the son of God, leave the realms of glory and come to this place? Come, come here to this filth and just chaos, be born of a virgin in a stable, impoverished, low-income people. The king of kings puts on flesh and lives as a servant and a slave to humanity to honor and glorify the Father and to bless us. Why would he do such a thing? So that where he is, we will be also. So that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He did all of it so that he could gather to him his people and say, you are mine and I am yours and we are one as I am one with the Father. And it's about relationship. That's the heart of the gospel. We had no way of getting to God in our own works and, and good, good things, good works, abilities, religion. So Jesus came that where he is, we may be also. Jesus is laying out the plan and purpose of his ascension. How it is actually beneficial to them that he leave them. Three things he makes clear in just these six verses. The first thing we have to note is he spoke truth to them. He spoke truth to them. He says here in uh, verse 2. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. That might seem like a really small point. But Jesus is saying, listen, what I've told you is true. And I'm going to speak truth to you. If there was nothing after this life but just darkness and, and just despair or just nothing at all, you just cease to exist, I would have told you that. Because I would have told you that. If there was nothing more, I would have told you. But I've told you truth. And the truth is there is something after this. There is something that will go on for eternity. He also says very clearly he goes to prepare a place for them. What that place will look like, what people have thought it looks like, the songs that have been sung about it, from hymns to southern gospel to different genres of music, we don't know. It's great to imagine and to think about what that dwelling place would be. The word in the original language literally means dwelling place. I go to prepare a dwelling place for you. I know that in, the, in our translation, the King James translation, says mansions. Some places says rooms. The, the key is dwelling place. What I want to focus on is what Jesus said is, I go to prepare a place for you, a dwelling place for eternity. That where I am, you'll be also. So he tells them truth. There is something after this life. He tells them he's preparing a place for them. This is an eternal dwelling place where we will be with him. And then also he says, he will return to receive them to himself. He says that in verse 3 as well. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the guarantee of security. This is the guarantee that he says, I will hold you 
until the day that you come to me or I come and receive you unto myself. There is a guarantee of security. So just in these few verses, we see that Jesus spoke truth to them. There is something after death. He guaranteed them security. I will receive you unto myself. And he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I believe these same things are true for the believer today. Now, a question that might arise is the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1. What does Jesus say? Let not your heart be troubled. The word troubled means anxious. Let not your heart be anxious. Now, we know in Scripture when it says your heart, it's not referring to your actual, you know, heart, right? What's it speaking to? Your, your seat of your emotions. Don't let your emotions be anxious. Don't let that thing in your gut start to drive you to anxiety. And he says this in a way of encouraging them with the following verses. That's why I say to you, this week when you come against that thing you don't even know is coming and it wants to draw you into anxiety and draw you into fear and draw you into doubt, you reject that and rebuke that by saying, no, my heart will not be troubled over that because I have a God who is for me, who will keep me, who will receive me, who's preparing a place for me. You guarantee, or you're guaranteed rather, that eternal home, not for your works or your abilities, but because of his grace. So we reject that anxiety. My heart will not be troubled this week. But we have to ask and pause and ask ourselves in Bible study, why did Jesus open up with that statement? Why does he even say, let not your heart be troubled? Well, in Bible study, the greatest way to know the answer to those kind of questions is to read what happens before. So what happens right before this text? What happens before Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled? So we see the first thing is that there's an importance of this moment. But I want to note as well, talking about the ascension, The disciples' response to this moment. The disciples' response to this moment. Look at John chapter 13, verses 33 through 36. John chapter 13, verses 33 through 36. Jesus says this, little children, it's not derogatory or meant to tear them down. It's not an insult, right? Nowadays culture, if you call someone a kid, that's almost like, disrespectful to them if you're an adult and you get called a child. But Jesus isn't using it in that way. Jesus is actually using this in a loving term. It's a comforting term. He says, little children, let a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Man, we need to remember that commandment nowadays. We're really good at preaching truth until it's truth like that. And then we kind of get quiet when we actually have to love somebody who disagrees with our political views. Heaven forbid. Goes on to say this in verse 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Now we know the next few verses, Peter being Peter says what Peter says. Oh Lord, you know, Lord, I'll die with you. I'll go anywhere with you. No, you're not Peter. You're going to be terrified by a 17 year old girl. You're going to deny you even knew me, but that's okay. We'll get there. John 21 restoration and repentance takes place. Praise God. But here we see in John 13, what happens here? Jesus is telling them of his coming departure. He's telling them of the ascension. I must go away. And the disciples' response is not one that's uncommon to how we would respond. Again, from Acts 1.10, we see a response. We would probably mirror that. Here, I think we would do the same thing. Now, Peter speaks up here, but Peter's not the only one feeling this way. Peter's kind of the spokesman for the apostles. He tends to be the one that speaks, probably because they couldn't keep him quiet. And he would just talk and talk. So he just ended up being the spokesman for the apostles. But here we see Jesus is warning them and telling them and letting them know what's coming. Gives them a command to love one another. It's one that he repeats later. But how do the disciples respond? And and I guess I could ask you, how do you think you would respond as a disciple or a follower of Christ? If Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't come. You can't follow me now, but you can follow me afterwards. I think we would all be sorrowful. There was sorrow in the room. They were sorrowful when they heard the news that Jesus was going to be leaving them. You can jot it down for notes. We see this repeated in John 16, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, sorrow has filled your hearts. 
So there's, there's this sorrow that's there. From the moment that Jesus begins to make it clear that he has to depart from them and they can't follow immediately, there's a sorrow that's in the disciples' hearts and minds. And the truth is, this had to be horrible news. This had to be horrible news for the disciples. Although Christ forewarned them many times of his departure, to hear the phrase, you cannot follow me now, must have been very difficult. This is why I believe Thomas says what he says in John 14. I don't think Thomas was doubting Jesus or being doubtful Thomas. I think he said, what is the way? We want to know the way. And he's saying that because Jesus just told them, the way I'm going, you can't follow me right now. So when he says, you know the way, Thomas says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You just told me I can't go that way. So what is the way? Because Thomas was very clear in all the accounts we read of Thomas, very little, but all that we read of him, he wanted to be with Jesus. That was key. I need to be with Christ. So Thomas was not doubting, I don't believe. I think he was wanting to have clarity on, okay, what is the way? You said we can't follow now, so how do we get there? And that's leading to the sorrow that Thomas even feels following the crucifixion. Not only did Thomas and other disciples battle with this sorrow and confusion, maybe to some degree, about what this all meant, we know that Peter struggled with this more than once, even to the point of rebuking the Lord. In Matthew 16, 22, when Jesus was talking about the coming crucifixion and the suffering and all these things, Peter, not understanding, said, Be it far from thee, Lord. He actually rebuked Christ. The word rebuke actually means to deal harshly. So Peter kind of got in Jesus' face, if you want to say it in our kind of daily language today or how we would look at that. He kind of got in Jesus' stuff. And he started telling him what he was going to do. No, be it far from these, Lord. You would never do, you can't do that, Lord. And we know the story that Jesus actually rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Not that Peter was Satan, but Peter was saying things in agreement with the plan of Satan. And so here we see the disciples were sorrowful. They didn't understand He says he's leaving, but we don't want him to leave. We don't understand how this can take place. We don't get why God is doing what God is doing. Let me just ask you a question. You ever been there? Not get what God is doing in your life? Leads to sorrow, confusion, doubt even at times. We, like the disciples, can allow our lives to be full of sorrow and doubt. When God allows circumstances to play out differently than we thought they should. However, it's something God has encouraged me with over the last couple of years, and it seems I always need this encouragement. I always need God to give me gentle reminders on this. Usually it's not always as gentle as I would like, but something that God has encouraged me with in the last couple of years is faith is trusting in the heart and character of God when his plan seems confusing. Faith is trusting in the heart and character of God when his plan seems confusing. That's difficult. That's so difficult. But let me just ask you, aren't you thankful that while his plans or the circumstances seem to be chaotic, they're not. He's a God of order. But they seem to us as chaotic. Aren't you thankful that you can stop and pause and say, God, thank you for your rock-solid character and love for me? God, thank you that while I don't understand, you've never changed. That, yeah, your plan seems confusing. I don't get this, God. But you've never changed. And you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, I rest in your unchanging character and love. Faith is trusting in the heart and character of God when his plan seems confusing. Faith is not always having answered prayer. Faith is not everything working out the way it should. Faith is saying, God, no matter what happens, even the good or the bad, as we sang about this morning, you are God alone. So we see the disciples' initial response to this is one of what? Sorrow. Confusion. God, how can this be? So we understand the importance of this moment. We understand the disciples' response to this moment. And thirdly, I want to look at the fulfillment of this moment and unpack how that affects the disciples as well. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And I want to read verses 8 through 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. The word witness there in the original language basically translates to martyr. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the othermost part of the earth. 
Tonight, we're actually going to unpack that even more. So come on back tonight, 6 o'clock. We're going to unpack what's being spoken of there and how we see that fulfilled in the book of Acts. Verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they behold, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, "Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into the heavens? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall also shall so, wow shall so come. That shouldn't have been that hard to say, but it was. Shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day journey. So they go back to Jerusalem following this." powerful moment. When Christ ascended, it doesn't just mean that he went up into heaven. We tend to think that he just went up into heaven. In our understanding of the word ascend or to ascend, we think ascended means to go up a hill, right? Or go up to a city. I ascended up a hill. I ascended up to that city. It's just this idea of going up. However, when we see and understand ascension through the lens of biblical literature, The idea or concept is to ascend to a particular place for a particular purpose. I think this is is the power of the ascension. This is where we forget this. We, We don't catch this. Well, Jesus just went up to heaven. Yes, but why? Why did he go back to heaven? Why did he ascend the way that he did? And why did he do it when he decided to do it? See, it wasn't just, oh, Jesus just went up into heaven. Although that's part of it. He went up, he ascended for a particular purpose to accomplish a particular goal. So what was and is that purpose? What was the purpose of his ascension? What did he ascend to heaven to do or to become? We understand from the rest of scripture that Jesus ascended to the Father to be seated and enthroned on the right hand of the throne of the Father, to be honored and glorified as the lamb that was slain, but also the king of kings who reigns today. This is the power of the ascension, that he didn't just go back to heaven. No, no, he went back to heaven for a particular purpose at a particular time in a particular place to accomplish the goal. He's enthroned as the king of kings. He is the lamb that was slain and the king who reigns through his church. We represent that kingdom of heaven, that we are the body of Christ. And he is enthroned on the right hand of the throne of the Father. And he's interceding for us. He's doing that priestly work of praying for us. And it is a powerful reality. And we realize that he ascended to the Father for a particular purpose. And that's the benefit of you and I in the world today. To equip us and empower us with this Holy Spirit so we can do the will of God. Not just in one person or in one place, but through all believers through the whole world. That he is doing this great work and he ascended for a particular purpose. You see, I love what J. Vernon McGee also points out in his commentary. Not only do we think that ascend just means he went to heaven, he just went up to heaven, but it's so much more than that. There's also a word there that talks about that he was received by a cloud. And in our English, we read cloud and we think of what? A cloud, right? We think big puffy cloud looks like different shapes, right? It's always fun to drive down the road and try to imagine what that looks like. My boys will always say, oh, it looks like this. I look out the window, I'm like, that doesn't even look close to that. I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, how does that look like that? But of course, as a good dad, what do you do, dads? Oh, yeah, sure. That looks just like that. Yeah, it's a bunny. Sure, of course. But what kind of cloud is being spoken of here? J. Vernon McGee points out in his commentary, There was a cloud to receive him. What kind of cloud? Was it a moisture cloud? No. This was the same Shekinah glory cloud that had filled the tabernacle. And could you imagine? We think, okay, that was pretty impressive that Jesus just taken up into heaven. And that's why the disciples were amazed. No, I believe the glory of God fell on that place. And Jesus was carried back to heaven by the very glory of God. I think that's why they were so astonished by what they were seeing. Because the presence of God overwhelmed them. It is also a fulfillment of Jesus' prayer in John 17, verse 5. Jesus prayed this, Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. 
What was Jesus praying? To glorify the Son with the same glory that the Father and the Son shared before the earth was. It's the glory of God. It's what the Old Testament calls the Shekinah glory of God. And that cloud that came was the fulfillment of that prayer. And it was Jesus being carried to heaven by the very glory of God. And so when we read these words, we think, okay, he was just taken up in a cloud. Oh, man, we miss it. Man, we miss the weight of it. Do you know the glory of God? When the, when the presence of God and the glory of God would fall, the Bible says that people couldn't even minister because the weight of it was so strong. That's probably a better word to understand the glory of God. It's just a weight. It's just this weight that is honest in the very presence of his power. Do you know the glory of God was shown just momentarily at the Mount of Transfiguration? I mean, just a, just a small snippet of the glory of God. How about Moses when he went up the mountain and he cried out to see God? And just being close to the presence of God and just seeing at a glance, the, if the Bible says the backside of God as he passed by. What happened to Moses' face? It began to actually shine. You know, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when it says that the garments shined brighter than white, you think, what's brighter than a white garment? Like, that's, that's white. That's the glory of God. And it just, what was the reaction of Peter and the disciples? They just fell on their face before the presence of God. And we read in our English text, well, Jesus was taken up in a cloud. And we missed the point that it was the glory of God on display, glorifying the Son as the resurrected Savior of the world. And that when we put our faith and trust in him, we will have a relationship with God. Following the ascension, we read that the disciples in Acts chapter 1, it says they returned to Jerusalem. Pretty simple statement. We know based in Acts 2, that they were awaiting the promise of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said? After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You need to wait. David Platt says it well. Jesus was most likely talking directly to Peter in that moment because he was probably thinking, Peter, I don't want you to go out there without the Spirit and you're going to screw this whole thing up. You're just going to mess it all up. So just wait for the Spirit. Now, I don't think Jesus was speaking specifically to him, but I find it funny that David Platt points that out. So they went back to Jerusalem and they were in the upper room and the Spirit fell and Acts 2 takes place and this is powerful moving of the Spirit. And again, we're going to unpack that even more tonight. But again, in Luke's account of the book of Acts, who Luke is the author of the book of Acts, he tells us here they just went back to Jerusalem. But we read another account of this in his gospel. So go to Luke 24. Luke 24. So again, if you don't know this, uh, Luke authored the gospel of Luke. And he also wrote the book of Acts. It's the same author. And both really are an amazing kind of historical type record of the ministry, the life of Christ. Luke records in his gospel all the great things that Jesus had done. And really, when you think about it, he continues that through the book of Acts, right? I mean, Luke is the recording of the history of what Jesus did. And Acts is a recording of really what the Spirit did through the apostles and the church. And so it's kind of like he's saying, here's Jesus' earthly ministry. And then Acts is the continuation of that ministry through the church. And all that he did through the, the apostles. And so here in Luke chapter 24, we read his other accounts of the ascension and the following reaction of the disciples. Look at verse 50. Luke 24 and verse 50. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And the Bible says amen. We know what that means. It means so let it be, so let it go forth more or less. So it's the idea that they were doing this thing. It was a good thing and they wanted it to continue. By the way, we have to stop here and pause that I think in our church culture today, we would even have a hard time with that phrase in verse 50, and were continually in the temple. You know what that means? They were at church. Now, not church as we understand it, but basically gathered together. What were they doing? They were just worshiping God. And they were just praising him and praising him and praising him. And I think we think, well, but if I could see the ascension of Christ, then yeah, that's what I would do. If I could see the ascension of Christ, then that's where I would be. I would be at the temple. I would be praising God continually. 
Brothers and sisters, we live in the fulfillment of the promise of God's salvation. We don't need to see the ascension of Christ. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God in us. What excuse do we have to not continually be praising God every single day? We envy those. We envy those who saw these things and we forget that we are actually fulfilling or seeing the fulfillment of those things. Luke records for us two accounts of the ascension and the disciples' response. In Acts, they just returned to Jerusalem. But in Luke's gospel, he actually says they returned with great joy. So I have to ask a question. What changed between John 14, really John 13, the end of John 13, and Acts 1? What changes between let not your heart be troubled, John 16, you're full of sorrow, to Acts and the end of Luke, they return with great joy. What transition took place from sorrow to joy? What changed in these or in this timeline? I believe, as others have suggested, the reason there was a change was they came to understand the why, the where, and the what of the ascension. They began to realize the power of the fulfillment of Christ's words. They began to realize there's great joy because everything Jesus has told us has come to be and fulfilled before our very eyes. The reality is, if he told them he must suffer and die and rise again, and all of that came to be, and he says, now I'm going, I'm departing from you, but it's for your benefit because I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you'll be also. They now have great hope in the return of Christ and his indwelling presence through the comforter, John 14 and John 16. What changed between sorrow and disturbance and confusion and doubt to joy and praising and worshiping? They came to a realization that Jesus was telling them the truth, that everything he did was for a purpose and a plan, and it was all being fulfilled before them, and they get to be a part of this. And they realized that Jesus was speaking truth to them, that it's all come to be. This morning, we celebrate the ascension of Christ into the Father's house. We realize that we do not need to envy those who walked with Christ in the flesh because we have the fullness of the promise given to us. While we await his glorious return, we rejoice in his continual presence through the Spirit and the Word of God. We don't need to envy these who saw it take place. We have the fullness of the promise of God. The spirit indwelling in the word before us, we can walk in his very presence. Why? Because he ascended and sent the comforter. And so why do we celebrate the ascension? Why do we see it with great joy? Because it's the fulfillment of Christ's words. And if he said, I must suffer and die, and that came to be. He said, I must resurrect from the dead. I'll rise up from the dead. And that came to be. And then he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But don't fear. Let not your heart be troubled. Because one day I'll receive you unto myself. We trust and have a great hope that that too will come to be in his return or us going to him. And so if I can encourage you with anything this morning, it's let's celebrate this moment in the earthly ministry of Christ and see it with great value and importance to stir our hearts and to strengthen our faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the trustworthiness of your word. We thank you that you are a God who fulfills his promises. And Lord, I pray that with great joy, we would go out into our world, that we would go out into our cities and into our homes, and we would praise you continually, worshiping you for being a God who's not only our Savior who went to the cross, not only the Lamb that was risen again, but the ascended King of kings who is enthroned in heaven, ministering to and through your church by the working of your Holy Spirit, doing greater things than we can even imagine, interceding and praying for us, ministering as our heavenly priest. And so, Lord, I pray that when we read this account of the ascension, that we would see it with great value and importance, and that we would realize that we have a guarantee of assurance, because one day we will be with you. If it was not so, you would have told us. And so thank you, Lord, for preparing a place for us. Thank you for drawing us unto yourself that we would be with you where you are. And so, Lord, I pray that as we 
think of this account in Scripture, we have to ask the question of what kind of disciple are we going to be? Are we a disciple who's just standing, gazing up into heaven? Yes, Lord, anxiously awaiting your return, which is good and fine. But are we actually, in doing so, being disobedient to the call you've given to us? Lord, uh, some disciples spend their whole Christian life just gazing up into heaven, awaiting your return. And meanwhile, you're asking the question, what are you doing just standing around? But there's a mission and there's a plan and there's a, a purpose to our lives. And it's to go back and to go out and to praise you continually to draw by the witness and the testimony of Christ that you've given to your church to draw men unto you that they might come to know you as Savior. So Lord, help us to be active in pursuing those who are outside the body of Christ, to encourage them and to share the love of Christ with them. And Father, I pray again that that little phrase that we read, that others will know that we're your disciples by the love we have for one another. I pray that that would resonate in our hearts and minds. And I pray it would start with me. And so, Father, thank you for all that you've revealed to us this morning. And I pray that it's been glorifying to you above all else, but also that it stirs our hearts into a deeper affection for you. But, Lord, may it also stir our feet into more consistent action and follow through with our faith. Let us be followers of Christ and do what you've called us to do by your grace. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we're led in a song of invitation? Would you come and pray this morning? Come and bow a knee and just be thankful for the ascension, the, the risen Christ that ascended to heaven and is enthroned as the King of Kings. Maybe you would come and say, Lord, help me to not just gaze up into heaven. Help me to be active in what you've called me to do as you've given me all that I need and equipped me to do what I need to do. However God is moving, would you respond as we sing this song of invitation this morning?